0: The U.S. Supreme Court opened its 2019 term with a bang this week as the justices returned to the bench to hear historic cases affecting millions of LGBTQ employees, criminal defendants, and more. Welcome to The Term by Law360, a weekly podcast to keep you up to speed about the nation's top court. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the Supreme Court for our Newswire here in Washington. And joining me now from our New York studio is co host and Law360 editor at large, Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie?
1: Hey, Jimmy. I am still catching up from this Roland week, (laughs) I feel, anyway. Uh, So the court heard arguments in six cases uh, throughout Monday and Tuesday, and we're going to focus on the ones that really caught our attention. Uh, first, on our agenda is discussing some of the starry decisis uh, back and forth that happened among the justices during a criminal case challenging non unanimous jury convictions. And then we're going to dig into the landmark Title VII cases that were heard on Tuesday, uh, which have been all across the headlines.
0: Absolutely. But before we get into those, I want to talk to you, Natalie, about a case that the court took up on Friday, which is called June Medical Services versus G. And this is the uh, big Louisiana abortion case that's been on the docket um, that a lot of court watchers have been paying attention to. Essentially, what's happening is an abortion clinic is challenging um, a Louisiana law that requires... Uh, abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Uh, the clinic uh, that's challenging this law says that the requirements are very difficult to comply with and is only going to leave one abortion doctor left in the entire state to perform the you know 10,000 uh, procedures uh, that happen there each year. So uh, this is going to be the first major abortion case that the court's taken up since Justice Anthony Kennedy retired. Obviously, Brett Kavanaugh has replaced Kennedy, so uh, people are going to be looking to this one as a kind of a forecast of you know the future of not only Roe versus Wade but you know uh, reproductive rights in this uh, country so that's certainly one to pay attention to but you also had some that the court appeals I should say that the court turned away
1: yes uh you know, as expected, a number of denials. Uh, but uh, two that uh, cases that we had had our eyes on just for their impact on the legal industry uh, were among those. Uh, one was the Winston-Strong's appeal looking uh, to enforce arbitration in a gender bias suit. Um, so in that case, it leaves standing a California appeals court ruling that sided with the former income partner, Constance Ramos, um, who'd been accusing the firm of slashing her pay and denying her key work. Uh, you know, one of the few cases uh, really that had... To hit the legal industry that hasn't been pushed into arbitration. Uh, and additionally, the court also did not take up an appeal challenging the West Virginia High Court's decision to stop impeachment proceedings against uh, the state's own uh, then Chief Justice and two other justices. Uh, you know, I, I know we covered that pretty pretty thoroughly here at Law 360 over the last year or so. Um, so maybe that ends the drama <laughs> that, that's coming out of the West Virginia Court.
0: Right. Obviously, we don't know why the justices of the Supreme Court turned those um, appeals away or even why it took up the abortion case. Uh, uh, The court, you know, it does these um, in the form of very short orders that don't give any insight to its reasoning there. So I guess it's only a matter of speculation about why they turned those away. But perhaps they didn't want to get involved in a political question or something like that.
1: Possibly, although... You know, since when does the court shy away from politics, Um, especially this week, (laughs) especially this week? (laughs) Um, So anyway, so kind of digging into what's been happening this week at oral arguments. uh, I think we're going to start off first with uh, Ramos versus Louisiana. So this is a case uh, questioning whether non-unanimous jury convictions are okay, basically, uh, you know, in in, in the states Uh, if. If you tuned in last week, uh, we, we, were t- we talked pretty extensively about this case from Louisiana, and you can always go back and, and listen to some of the facts. Uh, but basically, you know, it argues that the Sixth Amendment's unanimous verdict requirement uh, should apply to all states under the 14th Amendment.
0: And yeah, but, but the court has already kind of answered this question, right? So what's Ramos's argument here?
1: Uh, well, that the court got it wrong, <laughs> basically. So so, 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 really, this case is about stare decisis, right? Um, and uh, the issue of whether uh, you know the court should adhere to a 1972 decision it had in Appadaca versus Oregon, where the court said that states were held to the same Sixth Amendment requirement, um, you know. We had talked, I think, a little bit, Jimmy, about, you know, the issue of precedent was going to be big on this one. And, you know, the justices did not disappoint. Stari decisis was, like, mentioned 33 times in the transcript. Um, In particular, uh, you know, Justice Alito really seemed to make an implication that this is a contentious issue for the the court and for the justices. Um, You know, he said, in quote, Last and last term, the majority was lectured pretty sternly in a couple of dissents about the importance of starry decisis. Uh, he was specifically pointed to Franchise Tax Board and Nick versus Township of Scott, where Justices uh, Stephen Breyer and LA and Kagan had come down hard on the conservative majority for overturning precedents. Uh, you know, yeah, I,
0: he- I, I kind of read his his comment there as almost like a shot across the bow to his liberal colleagues you know, OK, so you guys are thinking about overturning Apodaca in this case, whereas last ca- at last term you lectured us so uh, harshly and uh, kind of we didn't hear the end of it when we overturned these decisions in these other cases.
1: Yeah, he's like basically like saying the shoes on the other foot now. Uh, so what, right. are, what are we going to do? Right. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, in, in, in this case, Justice Kagan, she did seem to try to make an opening uh, for overturning the president uh, by by really questioning the. Uh, Ramos's legal counsel about whether it mattered that Apodaca was a splintered 5-4 ruling. Um, so, so she was definitely, I think, trying to make an opening for overturning the president. Although she, she did also s- seem to spend time wrangling with, you know, why the court should not stick to its own precedent here. You know, she 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 mentioned how states have been relying on this for 50 years, and it doesn't really matter whether it was wrong that that apodaca ruling because overruling something you know that's been on the books like that requires more than just a decision to be wrong um you know and 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 i don't, I don't i'm not sure lay lay watchers always realize that of the supreme court um but you know states have been relying on it and there's no reason necessarily to change it you know stare decisis right
0: Right. It's so interesting because Justice Kagan obviously is considered one of the court's liberal standard bearers. And here she is kind of laying out the roadmap for how the court could eventually side with Louisiana here, saying that there are all these reliance issues and that, you know, reversing 50 years of precedent would undermine stare decisis. And yet it's Justice Neil Gorsuch, you know, one of uh, President Donald Trump's appointees, who kind of undercuts that position and says, you know, how important is for how important is it for the state to be able to rely on this when their reliance interests are essentially just keeping people who were convicted of by non-unanimous juries in jail? Um, he says one might wonder whether we should worry about their interests under the Sixth Amendment as well.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's super unclear right now, I feel, uh, where the justices are are all going to land on this. Uh, We had hoped to see whether Justice Clarence Thomas would pipe up during these oral arguments, uh, you know, just given how outspoken he can be sometimes on the issue of stare decisis and, frankly, not (laughs) uh, sticking to stare decisis in in given cases. Uh, But he was unfortunately... was suffering from some flu-like symptoms, so he wasn't in the in the courtroom for oral arguments. Uh, we wish him a speedy recovery, and he will be participating through briefs and transcripts. So I'm personally looking forward to see what his take on this case will be.
0: Absolutely. Uh, was this going to be the case that he finally spoke up in? I suppose we'll never know. We'll never um, that know. brings us <laughs> right. That brings us to Tuesday's cases. Um, this is the big Title VII case um, about whether Title VII in the 1964 Civil Rights Act uh, prohibits LGBTQ discrimination in the workplace. It's a huge question that is probably one of the more uh, headline-generating cases on the docket this term.
1: Yeah, I mean, it cuts across not just social mores, but also, frankly, corporate interests uh, across the country. Uh, you know, and it's 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 been dividing lines um, across various groups. Uh, y- Jimmy, you, you were there. What was it like on the ground?
0: Well, I mean... You- Walking into the building that morning, there was a line literally wrapped around the block for how many people were there to see this very high-profile case. There was chants from protesters um, along the sidewalk. Uh, the press room was uh, filled to the rafters with uh, reporters. And you know, by the time I got into the uh, courtroom, I was kind of pressed up a little bit against the back considering how many people were there to see the justices take on what is kind of considered to be the biggest LGBTQ rights case since the court decided Obergefell in 2015. And that's when, of course, they uh, legalized same-sex marriage around the country. So this is kind of seen as the next uh, big frontier of uh, LGBTQ rights in this country. There are, you know, 21 states in the District of Columbia that, you know, have statutes on the books that prohibit uh, uh, people from being fired for being gay or lesbian. But, you know, in in other parts of the country there are no such you know codified legal protections so this case uh, is considered to be you know it's going to affect millions of americans in uh, their uh, ability to be uh, fired paid less or otherwise uh, treated differently because of their sexual orientation or gender identity definitely a big one
1: see i know like just not on regulation the regulation front but there's also like a patchwork of case law just from circuit splits across the country um you know, and there's been such division among the lower courts. I, I'm, I'm going to guess it, finding the consensus here on the uh, in the Supreme Court is not going to be an easy task. What what was your kind of read of the, the room inside?
0: Well, you're absolutely right that it's become kind of a, a very divisive issue in the lower courts. I mean, just look at these three cases that the question has come up in. Um, you know, obviously the Second Circuit and the Sixth Circuit held that, um, you know, Title Seven. Uh, does extend, uh, you know, Title VII's prohibition of discrimination because of sex necessarily includes sexual orientation and uh, gender identity discrimination? But you know, of course, in in, a, in another case um, that you know was dis, uh, argued on Tuesday uh, below, the Eleventh Circuit held the opposite. So it's one that's been percolating, and you know, you see, you saw some of that same division on the bench on Tuesday when you know members of the conservative wing of the court, like for instance Justice Alito, who we were talking about earlier, you know, he basically led the charge against uh, the employees in this case, and specifically their argument that uh, the text of the statute um, prohibiting someone from being fired because of their sex necessarily includes uh, sexual orientation or gender identity. He said, you know, in 1964, when Congress was uh, passing this law, they were not thinking of this very specific but distinct policy question of uh, gays, lesbians, and transgender people in the workplace. They were t- trying to get at a, a, a particular ill, which was, uh, you know, a, a men being treated differently from women, uh, you know, preferential treatment for men, um, and that was what they were deciding. And so, you know, Alito's kind of saying, well... Uh, we would essentially be imposing our policy judgment upon the country um, if we were to rule in your favor. Now, that wasn't the consensus among the conservative justices. Uh, One thing that was really surprising in oral argument was Justice Neil Gorsuch, who seemed to be kind of open to the um, employee's position in this case, and could potentially, maybe, Possibly be a swing vote when it comes really? down to a decision. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, this kind of runs counter to what a lot of people had predicted, but, you know, Justice such is a, he was called an avowed textualist. He's someone who prides himself on looking first to the text of a statute before anything else. Um, and, In this case, he seems to think that whether the text of the statute includes, um, you know, uh, sexual orientation discrimination or transgender discrimination, it's a close call, he says at one point to an attorney for the ACLU. But it wasn't all good news for the plaintiffs in these cases because he also says, um, you know, but if because it's such a close call, what am I to do? with the fact that you know, this would cause, in his eyes, a, quote, massive social upheaval if he, if he were to rule for, in particular, this um, transgender plaintiff who says she was fired because by a Michigan funeral home for having transitioned. Um, you know, the, the conservative wing, including Gorsuch, seemed to be fearful of all of the changes that this would reckon in um, workplaces across America and their sex-specific policies.
1: Yeah, I, I, I know I heard uh, that a lot of time was spent on, you know, discussing, like, say, transgender women using women's bathrooms. Uh, can, can, can you break that down a little bit more? What was, uh, you know, th- what the justices were focusing on?
0: Yeah, I think that has to do a lot with a, an argument that one of the attorneys um, for the Michigan funeral home has been making in this case, which is that you know obviously uh, the plaintiff Amy Stevens was fired in the words of her employer for not uh, conforming to the male dress code, um, and so the, the the funeral home's argument um, through their attorney is that you know to to say that that's illegal is to say that all types of uh, sex specific policies in the workplace are illegal. You know, if you go after say a man for showering in the women's restroom that's that's two would be swept under the purview of title seven um, you know oh. Sports teams uh, that only include uh, women are two made illegal by dint of the ACLU's position in this case. But it wasn't just the conservatives that were issued about that were concerned about this issue of uh, transgender employees using um, the uh, gender opposite their uh, you know just sex assigned at birth. Uh, it was Justice Sotomayor who wanted to know from the ACLU's attorney how to deal with the fact that there would be women who are quote made uncomfortable and untruded upon if someone who still had male characteristics walked into their bathroom so that seems to be something that the justices feel like they're going to have to deal with if they decide that um this uh, in this specific case uh that that was also illegal
1: obviously that's such a complicated issue to tackle what were some of the liberal colleagues uh on the supreme court you know what, what was their stance
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I would say that some of them used the oral argument as a bit of a strategy time to kind of convince some of their more conservative colleagues, like Gorsuch, to maybe see the case their way. I'm thinking in particular about Justice Elena Kagan, who really makes these overtures to um, Gorsuch's textualist instincts, what I'll call them, by saying, you know... We don't do this anymore, where we look behind the 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 letter of the law and into the minds of what Congress was thinking back in 1964. And a lot of that is because of the way that conservatives have changed how um, the Supreme Court does statutory interpretation. So she says, that said, now we have to look to the text of the statute, and the text of the statute, she says, appears to be pretty firmly in the corner of the plaintiffs here. But you know, obviously, strong words. Very strong words. I don't, I don't think she was really uh, disguising her ultimate position in the case, nor was Alito on the other hand. Uh, but, you know, whether Gorsuch agrees with that line, um, you know, obviously no doubt it will be the subject of speculation for some time to come. But, uh, you know, don't expect an answer until uh, way later in the term when the court uh, hands down its most divisive rulings. But definitely expect this, some very fiery uh, dissents and opinions uh, by the justices of the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, I have to agree with you. I don't think we'll be seeing the decision on this one for for quite some time. Um, In the meantime, though, next week, we're going to be, it's going to be another busy one for the court. Uh, Despite the Monday holiday, there's going to be two full days of oral arguments. Uh, On Tuesday, the court is dedicating the day to cases that have, uh, about five cases that have been consolidated, all essentially dealing with whether appointments to Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board, that board overseeing the island's reorganization are valid or not. Um, you know, obviously big implications for the island and also for a lot of the corporate players that are involved with the debt restructuring and um, everything happening down there.
0: And on Wednesday, there's going to be three more cases that are going to be argued. And one of them is of Particular interest to people like myself from the Washington area, uh, and it's called Mathena versus Malvo, um, touching on the D.C. sniper shootings from more than a decade ago. And essentially, the case is about whether one of those convicted, the younger of the two shooters, uh, who was a minor at the time, should have his life sentence reduced. It's going to be an interesting case that builds upon the court's uh, juvenile sentencing decisions of, of years late, but obviously, again, Justice Kennedy, who was a big factor in a lot of those cases, he's no longer on the court. So, what the court actually does. Now that Kavanaugh's replaced him, remains to be seen.
1: Definitely another big access to justice issue, and uh, I think definitely another uh, opportunity to, to get a read on the new makeup of the court, um, as you're saying. Uh, Jimmy, though, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Natalie. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
1: We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Andrew Strickler, Kevin Penton, and Brayden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Topher Moore and Alex Elena. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com the term. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.